0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you on a bright, fresh October morning. Uh, Rich and Lori are going through culture shock. They've been freezing, and they're missing the heat. And they're missing a lot of dark-skinned people. Um, But we're glad to share with them and their family yesterday, and their son Daniel and his friend Rachel, is it? Yes. Yes. Daniel and Rachel are both in second year at Redeemer University, so it's good to have you here too. God bless you as you continue to serve him and Rich and Laurie as you return to your chosen place of living and serving the Lord. Now you may wonder why I'm speaking today and George is not. Several weeks ago, George said he was going to be having uh, a busy week, so he asked if I would speak, so that's why I'm speaking today, and it's my privilege. Yesterday, AJ, who is Andrew Joshua, and Kira Yipma were single people. And by the time the ceremony was over, they had a new identity. They were one flesh. Usually we think of Mr. and Mrs., but in the Christian sense, the real identity is a spiritual identity. It's one flesh. We have an identity crisis in the world today. People are struggling with who they are. uh, What's their sexual identity? uh, What's their ancestral identity? And people are fixated on their ethnic roots Even if it's not politically correct to ask uh, what's your ethnic background, uh, people want to know what it is, and and many are willing to pay a lot of money to discover their ancestral roots. Maybe you've already looked up ancestry.ca. It's a lucrative business. But it's not essential to know what our geological, our genealogical identity is. Now, I'm Irish. My roots are in Ireland but that really doesn't define who I am, and it doesn't really make any difference. But what is critical for us as Christians is to know and understand our spiritual identity. Well, it's not simply saying, I'm a Christian. Do you know what your real spiritual identity is? And do you know where in the Bible to find out what your spiritual identity is. Well, this morning we are looking at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and to learn about what our spiritual identity is as followers of Christ. So we're going to be in that book. uh, And Ephesians is our spiritual identity manual. It was written about 30 years after Jesus had died and was raised again and returned to heaven, about 60 AD. Written mainly to people who were followers of Christ, but they didn't have a Jewish identity. They they were Gentiles. And the culture of the day in which they lived in Ephesus was obsessed with magic and the occult. And I wanted to reference their history in Acts chapter 19. I'm just going to read a few verses because Paul came there and he spent at least two years planting that church. And this is chapter 19 of the uh, book of Acts. And so we're, we're reading here because I think this is significant for us to appreciate the, the background, the context. And I'm in verse 10. So he's teaching. and It says, this went on for two years so that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia seven sons of Sceva, a jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, "Jesus, I know and I know about Paul, but who are you?" Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That would be a scene. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls or their books together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely And grew in power. In today's terminology, it's over $6 million worth of books of scrolls that were used for incantations and all of these uh, witchcraft things. That was what the people brought and had that big bonfire to, to burn the bridges that they had held with the occult. And Paul has this spiritual dark side in the background as he writes to the believers about the heavenly realms that side of their lives. And he very carefully and deliberately paints a word picture of the spiritual identity of those he addresses. So he starts out in the first verses, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So these were people who had turned away from that dark side, from dabbling in the occult and dealing with things in the outside of this world the other side. And they'd turn to embrace Christ. So Paul begins with a common greeting of the day and links it to the spiritual blessings that are theirs and ours through our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And the key word in all of this is in Christ. In Christ. So I'm going to read portions of Ephesians 1. So if you would stand together and we will Share these verses. I'm reading, first of all, verses 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then down to verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together, under one head, even Christ. And then verse 13. And you also, you... Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see so that we might know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage us this morning as followers of Christ to appreciate our true spiritual identity, who we really are in Christ. Now, this is my disclaimer. I don't have the human ability to comprehend and explain this to your satisfaction or mine. It's beyond our human understanding. These are heavenly truths expressed in earthly terms, and we don't have the words to give us full understanding. And we cannot examine these truths like we do in the laboratory and bring them down and dissect them by human reason and think we've understood everything about them. That doesn't work. These are spiritually discerned by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And that's why Paul prays in this letter for his readers as I've just prayed, his words. So the Apostle Paul begins by talking about the spiritual dimension called the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms. Now, you, in your translation, you may have various expressions of that phrase, the heavenly places. Uh, the word places has been put in or added by the translators to kind of make sense, but it's simply the heavenlies. It's a definite article. So it's this invisible, this other world of God's glorious location. It's outside of the world that we presently live in and understand. It's the heavenlies. So let's explore what God's word says about our spiritual identity. First of all, our spiritual identity is rooted in heaven with God, Our true spiritual identity is not tied to anything on earth. You know, you hear people saying, I'm Baptist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Anglican, I'm Roman Catholic. That is not a person's spiritual identity. And any spiritual gifts we might have or natural abilities that we, we may be able to do, do not give us our spiritual identity. Our spiritual identity is not, I'm a Sunday school teacher, or I'm a worship leader, and any ministry or service that we may be involved in does not explain what it means to be in Christ. Our true spiritual identity is tied to the heavenly realms where God dwells and rules the cosmos. Here's how some of God's prophets described the heavenlies. Moses gave this prayer for the people of God to pray. He says, Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people. Isaiah prayed, Look down from heaven and see from your holy throne, holy and glorious. And you will recall, and I will not ask you to turn there, but as Isaiah had this vision of heaven, he said, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The Apostle Paul in Chapter 3, verse 10 of our passage says that God's purpose to the church is to, quote, make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. And if we were to read John the Apostle's description in the first opening verses of the Revelation, we would be overwhelmed as we see this amazing uh, picture of God in his person through John's vision. So God in the heavenly realms is the source and the definer and the giver of who we are as followers of Christ. We are linked with Almighty God in his holy place in the heavenlies. And so our spiritual identity comes from God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. So this means for us something very important, very practical. We have dual citizenship. Who so we are. We're people with dual citizenship citizenship on earth and citizenship in heaven, in, in those heavenlies. Paul described his passion for the Philippians church in these words I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there. Someone has said, in one sense, Christians always have a double life in a double address. Many people in the world hold dual citizenship. It's very common. They're citizens of their country of origin and then they're citizens of their country of choice when they move to another country. So our dual citizenship also means that we're sojourners on earth. That's a, an older term, but it means we're just traveling through. And I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We need to be reminded of what life is really about. Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 10. And so we're identifying with Abraham. Hebrews 11 eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, who was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger or a sojourner in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and traveler and builder is God." He lived like a stranger in a foreign country. There's an old gospel song This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And that's a very contemporary meaning. We are not permanent dwellers here, our citizenship on earth is not who we really are, we're travelers. And we need to have a loose hold on anything in this life and any person in this life. We are on our way to our true home, to our Father's house. That's where our spiritual identity is rooted and anchored. Secondly, our spiritual identity is centered in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul uses the phrase in Christ throughout the Ephesians and his other epistles. And someone uh, has tabulated, there's about 130 ter- times this is used in the, in the New Testament, in Christ. It means that we're intimately united with Christ. Intimately united with Christ. That describes our union. So the marriage union of a man and a woman is a human illustration of believers being formed, being joined to the Lord. At the end of Ephesians chapter five, where Paul is talking about the husband and wife being one flesh, that's one and one make one, not one and one make two in marriage. But this is a spiritual reality. He says, we talking about Christ and us. We are members of Christ's body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking of Christ and the church, of Christ and you and I. So that marriage on earth is to be, and it is, God's human object lesson. And what it means for us to be united with Christ intimately, totally. God puts us into this full intimate relationship with Christ. It's a sacred union. This great mystery has been revealed because he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And there's that total oneness, that intimacy. Now, he doesn't say that the one flesh union is some vague mystical idea. It's a spiritual reality. We do not become God or divine. We become united with the Lord Jesus. When a wife is united to her husband in marriage, She does not become her husband, but she becomes united and vice versa. And so the believer's baptism that we practice here by immersion is a symbolic demonstration of what happens at the point of repentance and faith in Jesus. The moment, the very moment we choose to consciously put our trust in Jesus as our Savior, we are instantly immersed or placed into Christ, into this spiritual union, We're united with Jesus in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that's the act of the Holy Spirit. It also means we are positioned for spiritual blessings with Christ. In Christ qualifies us for spiritual benefits because we share everything that he has to offer. And Paul identifies several of these in our text this morning. Uh, several benefits and the gifts of grace that we are showered with through our union with Christ in the opening section. And verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 is one long, continuous paragraph. It's an uninterrupted list of our spiritual blessings or benefits. So Paul takes this deep breath after he brings the greetings and he launches into a recital of God's blessing to us and from the heavenlies, from God's throne in heaven. So I'm not going to uh, I'm only going to mention these, but in verse four, uh, we've been chosen in Christ to be made holy before God. In verse seven, we have redemption in Christ, which is the forgiveness of sins. In verses 11 and 12, we've been chosen in Christ to be to the praise of his glory. And in verses 13 and 14, we've been marked in Christ with the seal of the Holy Spirit that guarantees our eternal inheritance as God's possession. These are the present realities that God has invested in us, that we share because we're part of Christ. So we have this rich inheritance. We have all of these blessings that are ours through our union with Christ. And we share them with every true believer throughout the world, whether they're educated or not, whether they live in the darkest, remotest parts of the world or in the most civilized Place in the world. It's our common share in Christ. And the moment that Paul takes a breath from this long paragraph that he's launched into, he moves into a heartfelt prayer for his readers in Ephesus in verses 15 to 23. He longs for them to have the spiritual vision to see and know all that they and we have through our union in Christ. So in verse 18, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this section um, sorry he's he's also praying for them, as we go on in these verses, that we would know and experience the resurrection of power of God in our own personal lives. Nine, verse 19. And I pray that you will know his uncomparably great power for us who believe that the power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And this section coupled with the next 10 verses in chapter 2, drives home the reality of our spiritual identity that is secured by God and secured with God the Father. So the third thing that we want to notice this morning is our spiritual identity is secured by the Father and the Son. It's safe. It's settled. So there's a parallelism, parallelism here between the last section of chapter 1 and the first section of chapter 2. It's in what God the Father did for Christ and what he's done for us. In both cases, Paul starts with the darkness of death and ends in a crescendo of spiritual victory and triumph and glory. So, let's first of all look at the pattern that we see in Christ. God's power exalted Christ from the grave to glory. We've just read that section. God's power exalted Christ from the grave to glory. And Paul begins with the crucified Jesus lying in a tomb on earth. It's a place where Satan and sin and death seem to have triumphed and pinned down the Son of God in apparent defeat for three days. There is an evil cloud of darkness and the smell of death. And then Paul describes the divine power that heaven unleashed to raise Jesus from the place of death. He calls this the power of God's mighty strength that he exerted in Christ. This was power above and beyond superior power of God at work to undo what death had done. But beyond even this, The power of God not only raised Jesus' earthly body from death, it seated him in that resurrected body at God's right hand in the heavenlies. And Jesus has been established in heaven with absolute, complete authority and power over every being and entity forever and ever, all over the dark side. And from this place... At the right hand of the Father, Jesus is constantly interceding to the Father for us who are united with him in the Lord. He's aware of you 24-7. He knows what you're going through. Because you're united with him, he appeals to God on our behalf. What a wonderful revelation God has given through Paul as he wrote to the Ephesian saints to those who are in Christ. So after taking his readers to this glorious mountaintop in heaven, Paul comes back down to take us up to that same spiritual location in the heavenlies. And that parallels what God's power did concerning Jesus. God's power raised us from spiritual death to spiritual glory in chapter 2, the first 10 verses are all about that. So notice what Paul does. He takes the believers in Ephesus back to their pre-salvation days. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, Paul included, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature object of God's wrath. So in their pre-salvation days, they were separated from God. They had no relationship with him. They were very much alive physically, But totally dead spiritually. They were not in Christ and were not blessed in the heavenly realms at that point. In fact, what he's saying, before being in Christ, they were under the rule and the power of the evil forces of darkness that influenced them to follow the ways of the world. They lived as citizens of earth only, dominated by the beliefs, the values, and the ethics and the morals of a system and culture that is alienated from the Creator and resists submitting to Him. We actually, before Christ, live out the character and the purposes of Satan. And we probably don't know we do. The prince of the power of the air. Paul says all of us, and though he's embracing everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ, who is in Christ. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our central nature and following its desires and thoughts. We were totally immersed in the culture of citizens of earth. And all of us, start out in life as cute little babies, but all of us start out in life spiritually separated from God. We're all like sheep who've gone astray, gone our own way as sinners by nature. This is a spiritual position, a spiritual identity of everyone from birth. We're pinned down in a spiritual grave and are candidates for God's judgment upon us. And there's nothing we can do to get out ourselves out of this separation from God. So if you're here today, and you've not embraced Christ as your Savior, through the Word of God, you're described as being in a spiritual, pinned down, dead, spiritually separated from God, not a spark of spiritual life. Paul reminds his readers that God did not leave them in their spiritual grave. So we read on in verse 5, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. He's taking up from the end of verse 2. And it's saying God didn't want to leave us there, so in his mercy and love, it moved him to perform a spiritual birth by making us alive with Christ. And that includes all of us who have called upon the Lord to save us from our spiritual death. One by one, the Lord raised each of us to life by the same supernatural power that raised Christ in his earthly body from the tomb. You probably didn't feel it. You probably were unaware of it, but the moment you became a child of God, you became alive spiritually. You left the spiritual grave and had life, but not anything you did. Not even the prayer you prayed, that didn't do it. It was God's resurrecting power. Paul goes on and he continues to par- th- th- with this parallel of God doing for us what he did for Christ. Then he says, God raised us up with Christ. So we're not only made alive, but he's... He's raising us up with Christ, lifting us from spiritual death and giving us spiritual life. That's what John 3.16 is about. You put your, lay, your name in it. Make it personal. God so loved me that he gave his one and only son that if I believe in him, I shall not go on perishing, but I have eternal life. Have you ever put your name in that? I encourage you, if you're uncertain about whether you're in Christ or not, find a place today, get John 3.16 out, put your name in it, and believe in Jesus. God not only raised us up with Christ, so we're spiritually alive. It says, he seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. It gets better. Where is that? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. God exalts us, takes us from our spiritual death from that grave, gives us life, and then raises us up and seats us in a glorified way, positioned with Christ. It's all God's doing. We can't do that for ourselves. And this is the location of our heavenly citizenship. This is our true spiritual and eternal home. This is our present and future spiritual identity in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. So, think about this. God has done it all so that everything about our union with Christ is as settled and secure as Christ's place and position is is settled and secure in heaven. We're as secure as Christ when we're in him. Our inheritance in heaven is secured. Our life with God is secured. It's all God's doing. The source of this is exclusively tied to God. It's by God's grace that we are saved. It is does not have its source in anything we might do. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And as we will gather in the next few minutes to come to the table and take the bread and, and the juice, that's what it's about, what Jesus did for us to enable us to enjoy this united life with him. All of this is the work of God. We are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's the spiritual craftsman that makes us, creates us, fashions us into this new creation in Christ through our union with him. If any person is in Christ, Paul says to the Corinthians, he or she is a new creation creation. It's our new identity. So what's God's purpose for us? Well, God's purpose for us is to live on earth like citizens of heaven. And Paul writes to the Colossians and this would be a good follow up uh, sometime from today to read chapter 3 of the Colossians. But Paul writes there and he says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Now, remember, raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God because that's our identity. That's our citizenship. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what is it? Look like if you're living like a citizen of heaven. There are certain things that you have to put behind you, put away. He says put to death. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Those things that get in the way and take you away from being what God has called you to be. And then there's things that we embrace. Verse 12 clothe yourselves with all these things, and there's a whole list of things. It even affects your relationship in your marriage and in your family. God does not leave this up to us. We're not talking about, you know, just gritting our teeth and trying to make ourselves live like citizens of heaven. He had prayed earlier in chapter one, that God's same resurrection power is there for us to draw on and live by. Don't try to live like a citizen of heaven in your own strength. It must come from God. So this week, live like a citizen of heaven. You're going to be faced and have to deal with the culture of being a citizen on earth. And there's going to be a tension. But that's, we are, live out who you are. We are united in Christ. And we're secure with him. He's praying for us. And so his resurrection power is available for us to whatever we face this week and day after day. So God bless you and follow him and live like a citizen of heaven. We're going to have the team come and lead us in a song, and then Dan will come and lead us in the Lord's table.